Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Our first reading is from Psalm 55, um, from verse 1 to verse 14, and that can be found on page 454 of the Bibles that are in the pews, and then it's also on the screen for you. So Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and answer me. I am troubled in in my complaint. I am distraught by the noise of the enemy because of the clamour of the wicked. For they bring trouble upon me and in anger they cherish enmity against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Truly, I would flee far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find a shelter for myself from the raging wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, confound their speech, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night. They go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst, oppression and fraud. Do not depart from its marketplace. It is not enemies who taunt me. I could bear that. It is not adversaries who deal insolently with me. I could hide from them. But it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, with whom I kept pleasant company, We walked in the house of God with a throb. Our second reading tonight comes from Luke, uh, chapter 19, uh, starting at verse 1. That's on page 854 of the Pew Bibles. Luke, chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek out and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last week we began our Unlearning Untruths series, noticing and investigating how we can accidentally come to construe the Christian faith in ways that are just really, really difficult to believe. Uh, We started with uh, one of the big issues, Uh, what we've come in our culture to call heaven and hell. I don't think the Bible puts it quite in those terms, 
but that's just how people speak about it, so that's how we got into it last week. Um, and in particular saw that uh, we've got to grasp the idea, the reality of the judgment of God in such a way that we hold two things together at the same time. We don't make God out to be a jerk who likes Christians and hates everyone else. That's no good. Nor who pretends evil and sin and damaging other people doesn't matter and so just winks at evil. What we hold together in the judgment of God is the moral and the personal. We saw that. The ethical and the relational. They're held together. And as big as the whole issue of heaven and hell is, in people's uh, in terms of people's actual experience of Christianity, I'd suggest, uh, having read a little bit of uh, you know the blogs that people write and the, the things that people say, um, it's not actually the biggest challenge. The topic we're going to look at tonight, that is, other Christians and the church in general, looms much larger for people. Perhaps uh, one quote uh, sums it up, uh, supposedly from uh, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, he said, I like your Christ. Can you guess what comes next? I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. It's not clear that he actually said it, but if he thought of it, he probably would have. You don't need to get it from Gandhi, though. Uh, every comment section of the Sydney Morning Herald, every episode of Q&A, just about every Christian depicted in a novel or movie or TV show recently makes the same point. It's Christians that make Christianity unbelievable. It's Christians that make Christianity unbelievable. And so people walk by or walk away. There are two versions of it. On the one hand, there are public figures. I'm going to give you two words. Ready? ScoMo. It doesn't even matter that he's not the Prime Minister anymore. He's still making waves as public Christian enemy number one, even when he's giving sermons in Perth. And who actually cares what happens in Perth anyway? But whether it's ScoMo or whether it's Brian Houston of Hillsong Infamy or the horrendous abuse and cover-up scandals of various denominations or even, depending on your perspective, a group of until-this-week obscure Manly Rugby League players, this is disgrace by association. These public figures, to one degree or another, disgrace the gospel and the church. And that means that we are tempted, tempted to distance. Distance ourselves from them, distance ourselves from the gospel, distance ourselves from the church, to take a step back and then a second one. But there's a much more personal version of it as well. Uh, that's not the church out there, but that's the church in here, in particular the church in here, hurting and damaging and scarring me. That's bad when it's another member of the church who through insensitivity or ignorance or worse, malice, actually causes me harm. It's really bad when it's church leaders bullying or hurting or abusing. And there's another sort of flip side to this one as well, that that's that's the negative but then there's the 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 positive that that's the the push you but there's the pull me as well when people outside the church my work colleagues my neighbors and my friends who who have nothing to do with Jesus Christ just feel more like my peeps they just feel more like my people they're in tune with me more they get me more and I get them so that I feel at home with them in a way that I just don't feel at home with 
the other Christians that are near me, as well as the public Christians that just embarrass me. So that it starts as an awkwardness and then it becomes a disengagement and ultimately it becomes a disconnection. And when it's up close and personal like that, you don't just take a step or two back, but especially if you've been hurt, you can run a mile. Do you know, do you, do you know the issue that we're talking about here tonight? Anyone got a sense of this one? Because at the same time, we have a problem. So here's the problem. Jesus says, and not just Jesus says, but Jesus does, right? Jesus says he loves his church. He really, really loves his church, including ScoMo and Brian and all the rest of them and you too. He loves his church, all of it, the actual church, the warts and all actual real church. He loves its church and don't you think it's dangerous territory to find yourself despising what he loves? You don't want to go there. And so how are we going to work this one out? How are we going to drain the bathwater but keep the baby when it comes to other Christians and the church? What we've got to do is come to grips with Christian hypocrisy, actually. What we've got to do is come to grips with Christian hypocrisy and the only way to do that is to really grasp what church by grace means. So let's uh, have a bit of an exploration of what Christian hypocrisy is and isn't. It turns out, I'd suggest, that Christian hypocrisy is actually quite a bit more difficult to define than most people might think, mainly because Christianity is not what most people might think. Most people, certainly the commentariat out there in the Twitter sphere and so on and so on, I just made all those words up actually, uh, most people seem to have uh, this idea of Christianity. Christians are people who think they're good enough for God. That's, that's their view of Christianity. Christians are people who think they're good enough for God. God looks around at people. He sees whether or not they've been good moral individuals and if they haven't been too bad, then all is well. He accepts them. But if they've been very bad, like Hitler, and you really you do have to be bad, as we saw last week, then they'd better watch out. Okay? And if that's your view of Christianity then it makes sense to stand in contempt of Christ if you see contemptible Christians. Right? It's just obvious that Christianity, this Christianity thing is not working. If that's Christianity, it's the, the people that are good enough for God and they're really not very good, so the whole thing's a joke. Of course, that is almost a total misunderstanding of what Jesus said and did and has almost nothing to do with real Christianity at all. It's just good old-fashioned religious moralism. Christianity is so much more radical than that, which I suppose is why it's so rarely understood. And you see that in the episode with Zacchaeus that was read out uh, from Luke 19. Uh, particularly in the final sentence, Jesus came to seek and to save the really good people. That's not what it says, is it? Jesus came to seek and to save the really good people, the nice, moral, upright people. No, no, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The people that Jesus is interested in are the broken, the bad, the murderers and the extorters. Uh, one of the problems we have with uh, the story with Zacchaeus is he's a tax collector and we think of people who work for the ATO, 
Right? Now, I, I, I've known people who work for the Australian uh, tax office, and they're, on the whole, pretty nice people. They wear suits, and they go to bed at night uh, at a reasonable hour, and they pay their taxes too, right? They're, they're, they're good people. That's not tax collectors in the Bible. Tax collectors in the Bible were really, really bad people. You didn't fill in forms to collect tax in those days. You got a, a sword shoved up against your throat. Zacchaeus was that guy. He was violent, brutal. He was probably a murderer. People had died because of Zacchaeus, either at the point of a sword or starved to death. He was that guy. Uh, you don't know people as bad, morally disgusting as Zacchaeus was. You, you just don't know people as bad as him. Okay, think of the worst person you know, the most repulsive person you know, the morally most depraved person you know, multiply it by five or ten, and you've got Zacchaeus. And Jesus says, he's my guy. That's who I've come for. That's who I want. Uh, another point Jesus talked about, how uh, it's not um, uh, the, the well that uh, doctors have any time for. Doctors don't really care about people that are not sick. Have you noticed that? You go along to the doctor and say, doctor says to you, so uh, what, what seems to be the problem? You say, nothing. He says, uh, so why are you here? So, well, I just like seeing doctors. No, no, get out. Stop wasting my time. It's not the well that doctors have time for. It's only those who are sick. And Jesus says, in exactly the same way, he doesn't come to save the righteous. He's not interested in the righteous. He's only interested in sinners. If, if you're righteous, Jesus is saying, if you've got no soul sickness, and of course what he means is if you don't recognise that you've got soul sickness, if you don't recognise that you've got a problem, then Jesus has got nothing for you. This is what's called the scandal of grace. God only deals with bad people, not the good people. And you can see the implication of this. If the Christian message of this grace really gets hold of a town or a city, as sometimes it does, what you find is heaps of really morally ugly people in churches. And how awesome would that be? Now, if you're with me so far, and you can see what I'm doing, I'm pushing this line, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, and your, your rising up in you is a thought, isn't it? And it's just an emotion, even a feeling. It's, okay, Andrew. Yeah, 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 yeah. We get this. That's how things get started with God. Yes, saved by grace, forgiven by grace. That's the startup, sinner, uh, startup system, grace to sinners, all that sort of thing. But, but, once you get going, then it stops being about grace and starts being about how good you are. You start with, I accept you before you're good, that's grace. But as you go on in the Christian life, it becomes, because you're good, I will continue to accept you. There has to come a point where this thing gets serious, right? There has to come a point, and then you take out your finger and you find some surface nearby and you start poking it, where people take responsibility. Now, I, I, I want you to do some really good soul-searching here um, because, because I, I, would, I would bet at least 10 bucks. No, no, I'd bet a lot more that you've actually bought into, in some form or another, the start by grace 
go on by being good system? Because the answer could not be more emphatic. Absolutely not. That's not how it works. The scandal of grace really is a scandal. It's grace all the way home. It's grace every bit of the journey, grace from first to last. It never shifts to the moralism system. And the truth is that if it did, not one single one of us would have the slightest shred of hope. Not Christians, not non-Christians, no one. Because as, as we looked at a little bit last week, the only way the moralism system could ever work is if you lower the bar so low that our puny little jumps could make it over. And so let me just remind you what the bar is. You know what the bar is? It's not very complicated. Someone asked Jesus at one point, what's the bar? What's, what's the most important law? What's the thing you've got to do? What's the bar? And you remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. That's it. It's not, not complicated. Right? That's not difficult. You don't have to do, you know, calculus on that. And, and here's the truth. You don't even love your family that way. Right? The closest people to you. You don't even love your family that way let alone your neighbour. And if the question springs immediately to mind, well, Jesus, actually, now that you mention it, exactly who is my neighbour? You're in really bad, deep trouble right there because that's the question that Jesus was asked that led him to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. You want to know who your neighbour is? Don't ask who your neighbour is. Be a neighbour, says Jesus. No, whether it's Christian or non-Christian or Calathumpian, uh, as Jesus puts it, we'll look at this later in, in the time tonight, the, let the one who is without sin be the first to cast the stone. The moralism system will condemn us all. And, not but, and. And at the same time, and you need to hold on to this without letting go of the previous point, it is also true to say that the grace system really does change people. Did you notice that with Zacchaeus, actually? It's really important in the passage. He responds to grace with echoing grace. It goes way beyond mere morality to do what he does. He gives away half his wealth to the poor and he repays people fourfold. Yes, you better believe it. Grace changes people. In fact, I go so far to say that grace is the only thing that ever really changes a person. Uh, you know this, if you've been a child, I think that's most of us, or if you have children, if you've been a child or if you have children, what is the one thing that can melt a kid's heart and lead to real growth in thoughtfulness and responsibility? How do you, how do you help kids grow up? It will never be moralism. If you communicate to kids... Be good, and then I will accept and cherish you. If, if you had parents who, who communicated that to you, you'll know the pain of that. Because all that will ever do is crush kids into conformity or flip them out in rebellion. It will never melt their hearts or get them to change from the inside. This is the paradoxical power and beauty of the morality of grace. It never says, it never, ever gets to the point where it says, be good and then I'll accept you. And precisely because it doesn't, therefore it melts people's hearts so that they gradually become more and more good. 
And that's risky, isn't it? Grace changes people. Really? Can you trust Jesus that much? That you're not going to flip into moralism and how you relate to other people? What this means is a Christian is a work in progress, the progress of grace, gradually becoming more and more a fully devoted, fully formed child of God, overflowing with love and joy and peace and generosity and patience and self-control. And the, the, the fact is that a large part of how you rightly assess that process of grace growth is what the starting point is. Uh, for someone to be only mildly judgmental and critical, for example, if they've grown up in an extremely judgmental environment, might be actually a triumph of grace and the power of God at work in their lives. Uh, I've got a couple of quotes for you from C.S. Lewis. Listen to how he puts this one. Imagine two people, he writes, Christian Miss Bates, who has an unkinder tongue than unbelieving Richard Firkin. I don't know where he gets these names from. It's just C.S. Lewis, the guy's a poet. That's just all there is to it. Christian Miss Bates, who has an unkinder tongue, right? She's, a, she's just nasty. She's nasty with her words. And then there's non-Christian Richard Firkin. And non-Christian Richard Firkin is nicer than Miss Bates. And Lewis goes on, that by itself does not tell us whether Christianity works. The question is what Miss Bates's tongue would be like if she were not a Christian and what Richard's would be if he became one. Miss Bates and Richard, as a result of natural causes and early upbringing, have certain temperaments. Christianity professes to put both temperaments under new management. What you have a right to ask is whether that management improves the situation. Everyone knows that what is being managed in Richard Firkin's case is much nicer than what is being managed in Miss Bates. That's not the point. To judge the management of a factory, you must consider not only the output, but the plant, the, the, the machinery. Considering the plant at factory A, it may be a wonder that it turns out anything at all. Considering the first-class outfit at factory B, its output, though high, may be a great deal lower than it ought to be. No doubt the good manager at factory A is going to put in new machinery as soon as he can, but that takes time. In the meantime, low output does not prove that he is a failure. Do you see why Christian hypocrisy is actually harder to get at than you might think? Um, hopefully, there are many people who have turned to Christ and trusted him who are really, really morally bad people, just like Zacchaeus, who are on a journey of grace and still have a long way to go. Take this thought, right? Don't you wish that our church had a far lower average morality because there were so many converts from really bad backgrounds? Don't you wish that there was, the church was just full of really pretty grubby people who are on the journey? And yet, and I know the question that's in your mind if you're with this so far, what of Christians for whom the grace isn't melting their hearts, it's just making their hearts harder? There are so many people who name Christ who can be like this, as the crowd did with Zacchaeus, actually. Right? That, that's the other character in the story with Zacchaeus, isn't it? The, the crowd who uses the word sinner in an exclusive and abusive and oppressive way, and they beat people up with it, and they look down on people who don't have their beliefs and practices. And of course, there's a great deal of evidence of this in the history of the church that for many, many people, they've just given up on Christianity because of it. They can't get past the crowd. 
They don't believe Christianity for the visceral reasoning that goes like this. If Christianity was true, it couldn't produce people like this, but it seems that it is producing people like this, therefore it can't be true. And what do you do with that? What's so interesting about this episode with Zacchaeus is that he found a way to look at Jesus apart from the crowd. In other words, to see Jesus direct. What, what this passage is suggesting to us is that you have to find a way to get past the noise. Even the self-righteousness of so many professing Christians, the hypocrisy and inconsistency of so many people in the church or who name Jesus Christ, just like Zacchaeus did. What you'll find, of course, is that Jesus is every bit as against the self-righteous, moralistic crowd as you are. You think you dislike hypocrisy and hard-heartedness? You should meet Jesus. You should meet Jesus. Whenever you see Jesus talking to people who are sinners, he's gentle, even when he's trying to get them to change. The only place Jesus ever yells is with Bible teachers and the religious people. And what he says to them when he's yelling at them is that the pimps and the prostitutes and the thugs and the standover people get into the kingdom of God before then. So don't let the crowd interfere with your dealing with Jesus. It's interesting, every time there are two characters and a God figure in either an episode or a story that Jesus tells, the Pharisee and the tax collector and God, Simon the host and a notoriously uh, sinful and, and debased woman and Jesus, the younger prodigal son and the older righteous son and the father. If you notice this, time and time and time again, there's these three character stories again and again and again in the Gospels. Every time, every time, it's the outsider who gets in, and the religious insider who gets excluded. If you find the inconsistency of Christians a turn-off, when you finally get past the crowd to see Jesus directly, you'll find someone way ahead of you in his distaste for hypocrisy. And again, C.S. Lewis captures the point brilliantly. Listen to what he writes. He says, If what you want is an argument against Christianity, and I well remember how eagerly I looked for such arguments when I began to be afraid it was true, you can easily find some stupid and unsatisfactory Christians and say, so there's your boasted new man, give me the old kind, right? Christianity's supposed to make you born again? Well, thanks for nothing, I'm staying back here. But if once you've begun to see that Christianity is on other grounds probable, Lewis goes on, you'll know in your heart that this is only evading the issue. And then Lewis makes, I think, a really important point. He says, what can you ever really know of other people's souls, of their temptations and their opportunities and their struggles? Do you know what it's like to be a Christian Prime Minister of Australia so that you can write your narky, nasty little Facebook posts just like the rest of them? Really? What do you know of other people's souls? One soul in the whole creation you do know and is the only one whose fate is placed in your hands. If there is a God, you are, in a sense, alone with him. 
You cannot put him off with speculations about your next-door neighbours or memories of what you've read in the newspaper about disgraceful Christians. And then he has this lovely phrase, what will all that chatter and hearsay count when the anaesthetic fog we call the real world fades away and the presence of God in which you have always stood becomes palpable, immediate and unavoidable. You see what he's saying? He says, he says you can, all the chatter and hearsay, all the stuff about other Christians, even, even the things that have been done to you. When the anaesthetic fog that we call the real world, it's a lovely kind of image, isn't it? This sort of, oh, we're sort of wandering around. But when, when, when it all goes away, and, and, and you stand in the presence of God, which is where you've always stood, of course, but suddenly it becomes palpable and immediate and unavoidable. What, what are you going to say? Uh, uh, I, I, I didn't like those bad Christians. Each of us needs to deal with God on our own for the simple reason that he's far more capable of dealing with them, whoever they are, than you are. You've got to get past the crowd. You've got to get past the crowd. There's a real danger here um, to be so smugly, self-righteously judgmental about the self-righteous judgmentalism of other Christians that you end up being more than a little bit self-condemning. You've got to be what I'm going to call um, reflexive. As soon as you find yourself judging other people's hypocrisy, right? you find there's just yet another story of yet another... Uh, what does Lewis, how did Lewis put it? Um, stupid and unsatisfactory Christian. Yet another story. Yet another encounter. And, and, and you just, you're, you're in the, ah, oh, that person. You're judging them. You need to take that moment and then keep moving and go the next step and ask it about yourself as well. Not stop there and leave it hanging out. You need to take heed to your own soul precisely when you start sliding into taking heed of other people's souls instead. Which leads uh, to the final comment to make about this. Perhaps all along what you've wanted me to say, what you've sort of been waiting for someone to say is, you know what? They're not real Christians. They can't be real Christians. These hypocrites, these Disgraces to Christianity, hard-hearted and judgmental and self-righteous and condemning, narrow and exclusionary and hateful. They can't be real Christians. And that would be a convenient way out of the problem of Christian hypocrisy, wouldn't it? They're not Christian hypocrites since they're not real Christians. But that's the one thing you can't say. It turns out that that is the worst possible thing that you could ever say. It's the deepest sin behind all sins, the greatest failure that any human being can do to say that because that is to put yourself in the place of God. That's just self-idolatry. And you can't put yourself in the place of God and judge anyone, not anyone out there, actually not even yourself. Being Christian is always, always about God judging every one of us. 
judging us in the cross of Christ. The judgment of grace, so that we are graced even when we're not good. And thank God for that. Now, it turns out that we're wrestling with one of the most basic issues uh, that our whole culture, our whole society is stumbling over again and again. Uh, it's the issue of how to do community. It's the issue of how to relate to people who aren't like us and who we don't like and who disappoint us or even hurt us. And there are actually only two ways that you can do community. There's only two options available to you. On the one hand, there's community by tribalism. Community by tribalism is when you find some standard, some standard of behaviour, or these days, more commonly, now it's only even just a standard of opinion, uh, perhaps opinion on climate change or rejection of capitalism or whatever it might be, it's the having of some common standard that's what makes for community. You measure up, you're in. You don't measure up, you're out. But of course, that can only ever be community by merit. You just have to perform. There's no room for grace there at all. And all that will ever lead to is conflict and misery. I give you Sydney. Or there's community by grace. And that's the point, you see, that the gospel of grace is the only thing that can lead to community by grace. The gospel of grace is the only thing that can ever sustain church, community by grace. It's only a gospel of grace which means that you can cope with being deeply bound to people who you find extremely difficult and even repelling. Uh, I want to commend to you a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, the book's called Life Together. It's an absolutely awesome uh, book, uh, especially, it's not even the book, the whole book is, is, is you know, just the first chapter will do. It's about 22 pages. It's just stunningly helpful. It's one of the most profound descriptions of the way that the gospel of grace leads to community by grace. And listen to how far he pushes it. God, he says, God hates visionary dreaming. Now, there's a problem, actually, because we've just had our vision. We pray for that tonight. And so he doesn't mean that kind of visionary dreaming. He, I'm sure he doesn't mean that kind of visionary dreaming. He means a different kind of visionary dreaming. The visionary dreaming that he's talking about is when we have a standard or an intent or a dream or a vision about what community should be like, about how the church should operate. And Bonhoeffer goes all the way. He says God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious uh, this is mid-20th century, so it's gender-specific. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realised by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands. He sets up his own law and judges the brothers and sisters and God himself accordingly. Here's how church ought to be. Come on! He acts as if he's the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men and women together. And when things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes first an accuser of his brethren and then an accuser of God and finally a despairing accuser of himself. That's what happens when you do community by measuring up, community by tribalism. It goes that way. And then he says... 
What's the alternative? Because God has laid already laid the only foundation of our fellowship. Because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them. Right? That is because we are saved, brought into relationship with him and therefore brought into relationship with each other by grace. That's what he's saying. It means we enter into that common life community, the church, the church out there, not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brothers and sisters who live by his call, by his forgiveness, and by his promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily and is not what has been given us enough, brothers and sisters, who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace. Church by grace can only ever come from salvation by grace. And he says, is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this any day, even the most difficult and distressing day? And then he pushes it further. Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life. That's a really sweet and pleasant way of saying, even when other Christians really hurt you, really embarrass you. When sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother or sister still a brother or sister with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? And then, then listen to this. Will not her or his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ? And so Bonhoeffer draws this most outrageous, radical conclusion. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with my brother or sister becomes awesome. When Christians mess things up, Bonhoeffer says, that's great. It's translated incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. When the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. When finally you get away from measuring up to standards, from merit, then you can do community by grace. So let me ask this as a, as a, as a, as a way of kind of getting at this. Um, how do you respond to the weaknesses and failures and disappointments and sins and embarrassments of other Christians? Or let me put that a little more sort of precisely. What is Christian about the way that you respond to the sins of other Christians? Is there anything Christian about the way that you post on Facebook about the sins of other Christians? Or have you just been secularised parroting the comment section of the Sydney Morning Herald? Of course, there's grief and sadness and embarrassment and cringe and anger and outrage, sure. And what Bonhoeffer says is that for you to be Christian, 
about how you respond to the sin of others, there has to be something else as well. There has to be something else as well. Because their sin reminds you of something. It teaches you something that none of us, certainly not that person, not that hypocrite, and then your next thought absolutely has to be, and not me either. None of us, none of us live by our own words and deeds. None of us are right with God through our own words and deeds. None of us are even right with each other by our own words and deeds. Only by that one word and deed, Jesus Christ. And if Jesus holds that person by grace, and he holds me by grace, then true fellowship, not tribalism, not the misery of tribalism, but true fellowship can begin to grow. Uh, okay, I'm going to pause there. And uh, what we've said um, is that we're going to have a little bit of opportunity for questions uh, in each of these uh, addresses over this series. And because, of the, you know, these are big topics, um, uh, we've got the, uh, you know, unlearning untruths at the pub, uh, which is, as Richard mentioned, tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. So there, there may be uh, questions or comments or thoughts that you have. Um, let's go for a couple. Uh, and then um, it's actually really beautiful that we have communion tonight. Uh, do you think it's accidental that communion is this night? Because it's at the table where we all come as brothers and sisters and we're all kneeling and we've all got our empty hands open to say, I got nothing. I got nothing. All I've got is what Jesus gives me. That's who we are. That's all we are together. So we'll do communion in a moment. But questions or, 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 or uh, thoughts at the moment? Sure, sure. So uh, everyone got the question. I'm repeating the question for the live stream because I'm a very thoughtful live stream person. Uh, so the question is, what do you do when someone, it's not so much that they're doing something dumb or nasty, but that they've got, say, a, a, a non-core belief that's just not in place, like they deny that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. What do you, what do, you do about that, right? So first thing is, uh, and in particular the question is, do I think of them as not a Christian or something? What do I do? What do I do? So, so um, I, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, firstly, um, I just don't think that the, the category of telling people what they are that's different from what they say they are is just a fruitful category at all. Okay, so if someone says, I'm a Christian, and uh, I just think that Jesus was a mushroom, you go, well, okay, uh, I guess that's something to work with. Let's, let's see how we go from there forwards, right? If, if, and so you, you take the, the judo move, right? Judo is where you take the, the positive energy, and instead of beating up against it, you go, you, you try and take it with it. Well, let's talk about mushrooms, shall we? And, uh, and hey, there's these things called the Gospels, and let's, let's read about Jesus, and see how mushroom-like he turns out to be, and right? And so off you go. So I just, I just think that if, if you just... You making declarations about what people are or aren't, different from what they say about themselves, I just think, give it up. Like, what, what's the point? It's just a power play. Don't do it. Just, just give it up. Go with what people say and, and keep working with them um, uh, to whatever degree they want. So that's the first thing. Secondly, um, part of what that working with them means is engaging in fellowship with them to grow in knowledge and understanding and obedience to Jesus. And if that means working on the resurrection, then off you go. Let, let, let's get going. But the, the thing is, 
you, um, and this is where it's not what you say or do, it's what your heart is. Your heart will leak out. I don't know if you realise this, but what you actually have happening in your heart just leaks out all the time and people get it and feel it. And so if you have even a whiff of self-righteousness or judgmentalism or superiority about you, as you engage in the process of trying to help people come to a better understanding of the resurrection, that will leak and, and that will be miserable. And so, uh, it, see, it's even true that you're not saved by your doctrine. Can God forgive financial sins? Right? So you don't, um, so you steal something. I stole a packet of yo-yo strings back when I was eight from a shop was the most terrifying thing I think I'd ever done in my life up to that point. I was sure I was going to (laughs) die. Can God forgive theft? Of course he can give financial sins. Can God forgive theological sins? And is he wise enough to do it? And are you wise enough to figure it out? No, he is. So you, but, but the way you come at that has to be from this posture of at the bottom. And this is what we're trying to do. We're going down at the bottom. At the bottom, right at the rock bottom, I am no different from that person. I am no different from that person. And if you've got to start with grace but then go on with moralism, then what you'll end up thinking is, I was no different from that person, but now I'm way up here and they're way down there and they're really going to know about it. Right? That's the point. At bottom, you're exactly the same as them. And if, you, if that's what you actually have in your heart, that you know that you need grace every bit as much as they do, then, then you will be both... This is, just so, this is so powerful. You'll be that incredibly rare person who's strong and confident and bold and fierce and sweet and gentle and kind and humble, both at the same time. And there's only one thing that will make you like that, isn't there? Which is to know that you're a sinner saved by grace just like them. And if that's what's in your heart, then you can, you can minister to and you can connect with and you can be friends with and you can help anyone. Anyone. Yeah. How do you... I think... Um, uh, well... You asked, I'm going to say it. Uh, what, what, when someone revels in that with you, right, if, if you're in, in a company with them, what they're inviting you to do is to join them and disassociate from the bad Christians, right? They're, 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 it's called triangulating. They're triangulating you. There's the, there's the bad Christians out there that they're reveling against in how bad they are. There's you and there's them. And what they're doing is they're inviting you to join with them in hating on those bad Christians. So, so guess what I'm going to suggest you do? Guess? Go, you, you identify with them. You say, hey, you know what? I'm one of them. And what that does is that makes for a really awkward next four seconds. Because what happens next is they've got to decide, okay, so do I keep hating on them, which means hating on my friend here, or do I back down 
And, but if I back down, what am I backing down from and why? It's, it's actually, it becomes a very awkward next four seconds. Um, and, and what it does is it gives you an opportunity, because they like you, they just don't like those people, right? They're your friends, they like you. But if you identify with them, that then gives you an opportunity to say, and you know what, I, I know you think I'm cooler than them, but actually, in my mind, them and me, right down at the bottom, we're just the same. I, they need forgiveness from God. That's pretty obvious. What's not maybe as obvious to you is that I need forgiveness from God every bit as much as they do. And you know something that's even less obvious to you? You need forgiveness from God too. So that, that's what, that would be my suggestion. But, but boy, that's difficult, isn't it? Uh, hands up all the people that have really, in all of those dinner conversations, really loved the idea of identifying with Scott Morrison over these last three and a half miserable years. Who did it? Or did we just pay out, just like everyone else? We just got secularised. It was before Scott Morrison, it was uh, uh, Rudd. So I'm completely party, you know, indifferent on this one. Rudd was criticised in almost exactly the same ways as Morrison was. Doesn't matter whether they're Labor or Liberal. The political issues don't matter here. It's just, yeah. The question is, how do you respond to people who've themselves personally been, you know, really not just sort of a bit sort of miffed or a bit sort of ideologically offended, but really actually personally hurt by what's happened in church? And, and the, the truth is, um, that's just, I, I think what I'm going to say there is, that's a harder example, but it's the same deal, which is to say, what they'll be inviting you to do in, in, in that moment, right? And it's a spiritual moment of, of significant importance and temptation the invitation will be to say that that those bad people who hurt are somehow in a category that's different from you and them um uh, and 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 you just you can't go there you can't you can't allow that you can sympathize and weep and cry and cry with them and you must do all of that that's absolutely true and it's just the case that you and I and them all need forgiveness, just like everyone else. And what, you, what you'll do is, if you, if you allow yourself to be drawn into a situation where you say, those are the bad people, we're not like them, then suddenly what you've done is this terrible kind of, you've run a real risk of putting yourself outside the category of the sick. Do you see that? You see why that's such a. a it's very hard. Um, I've got another story to tell you. It's about another incident from Jesus' life. Uh, it's one of those three character moments. Remember the three character moments? There's the the bad person, the good person, and the, and Jesus. And this time, uh, the bad person is the woman caught in adultery, and uh, Jesus. And then there's the good people, the the crowd of blokes who catch her in adultery, and you know raise all sorts of crazy questions like how'd they know like it's not not, a, not an easy thing to catch someone in adultery it's night maybe like how did they were they did they trap her were they watching did they what what are they doing i mean the, the whole thing is just pathetic and jesus knows that he's got two issues to deal with he's got the sin of the woman which is a real sin i mean we might downplay it except if it's your own marriage um the sin of the woman and the sin of the condemners the crowd uh, her adultery, but their 
hard hearts. And first he deals with them. Do you remember what he says to them? He says that the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he deals with a woman. And what he says to the woman, do you remember? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, of course, that's, that's a story about an individual. Uh, it's actually a story about you as an individual, and you hope like crazy that if you're caught like that, then God would treat you like that, right? But I want to kind of take it and turn it into a metaphor and suggest that in another sense, we could make this a picture of Christians as a whole. Okay, the woman on the ground there, that she's been thrown down, that's the church. There it is, the church, cowering on the ground, caught in the act. There's no doubt about her guilt. Accused by dozens, by hundreds, by millions of people actually, tweeting away, circling around her. And perhaps even accused by you today. And of course, what Jesus has to say to that crowd is the same thing. Ready? Let anyone who is without sin cast the first stone. against the church. Well, another way to put that is to ask you, what are you going to do with your stones? What are you going to do with your accusations? And then as you walk away, you hear, of course, Jesus saying to the church, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But let's take it a step further. Um, uh, let's imagine the scene opens a month later. <clears throat> and there you are. And lo and behold, you see the woman. There she is. And, and you kind of, you know, you can't avoid you're walking on the footpath together. And, and you say, oh, wow, um, how are you going? And what, is, what does she say? Uh, hey, yeah, look at me. I'm now a perfect person. One quick instruction from Jesus and psh, all cool, perfect. Of course not. Now, what... She says, what the church says, perhaps is something more like this. Hey, don't look at me. Look at the one who had mercy on me. I didn't deserve it, that's for sure. I couldn't really have hoped for it. But he gave it, and for that I'm thankful with all my heart. Mind you, it's not easy. I'm still a recovering addict, a recovering sin addict, and it's hard as hell to break the habit. I'm trying and I can't wait till Jesus comes back again and fixes up this mess that the world is in. In fact, the longer I go on, the more I realise just how much I need mercy in my life. Every day. And then I wonder if she might just say something else. Something like this. Hey, um, tell me something. I recognise you from that day a month ago. You didn't throw a stone then did you in fact you were one of the first to drop your stone and so I'm wondering maybe you're an addict too maybe you need mercy like I need it you know something if you ask he'll give it to you just like he gave it to me he won't condemn you but he will help and command you you know what he said go and sin no more and if you do ask him then maybe we can be recovering addicts together. We have meetings. They're kind of like AA. We meet on Sundays at 10 o'clock and 6 o'clock. I go to one in Asheville. 
It's called church. And we worship a forgiving saviour. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, to you we lift our hearts in praise and thanks and worship. Because you know us, you know us through and through, you know us at our brightest and shiniest and you know us at our darkest. And your word to us is neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Lord, we pray that we would so be filled with your non-condemnation of us, with your grace poured out upon us, that we would be transformed to be those who adorn your gospel and about whom you say, well done, good and faithful servants. We ask this for your glory.